Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about our sponsor. The University of Dallas is a premier Catholic liberal arts institution, renowned for its rigorous core curriculum and thriving graduate programs. Careers in ministry, teaching, business, humanities, and science are formed here. With campuses in Texas and Rome, Italy, students begin their pursuit of a life well-lived. We have two alums of Dallas here at First Things on staff, and they are both superb. For more information on the University of Dallas, visit udallas.edu. That's udallas.edu. We have with us today Madison Trammell. He is the publisher of B&H Academic, which provides resources for undergraduate and graduate theological education. His new book is Fundamentalists in the Public Square, Evolution, Alcohol, and Culture Wars After the Stokes Trial. That's our topic today. Welcome, Dr. Trammell. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. This is a fun way to spend a day in the, during the Christmas break. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, now, I, I, I must be wrong. I thought fundamentalists have no right to enter the public square, or, or if they do, they should keep their mouth shut. Isn't that correct? So the way the story of fundamentalism has been told they were maybe over-engaged in the public square in the early part of the 20th century. Then they entered the Scopes trial full of vim and vigor. They won the trial, but lost in the court of public opinion. And after that, they were embarrassed and they withdrew and just sort of focused on building their own institutions, but left behind trying to influence culture. That has been the story. And I'm sure it's true. Some people would rather they would stay out of the public square. Uh, but I was arguing that uh, the opposite, that they actually d never did withdraw, not fully. Well, uh, you know, that, that, the story, the myth, we'll, 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 call, it, we'll call it that, in, in, a way, in, the, in terms of the myth being sort of a public meaning that, that, that pe people take as, as generally true, uh, is that myth adopted by fundamentalists as well as, as non-believers, non would you say? So it was the standard telling of fundamentalist history within the broader scope of evangelical history when I was a student. So when I went to uh, Wheaton to get a master's degree, this is the way the story of evangelicalism and fundamentalism was told. And partly it comes from a really excellent book. So I don't want to put down this book at all, but Fundamentalism in American Culture by George Marsden tells a really excellent, fully orbed, like wide ranging kind of backstory history of fundamentalism up till 1925. And Marsden states that the, the Scopes trial was a turning point that forced fundamentalists to withdraw from culture. So that has become, or for, for many years, it was the standard way that fundamentalist history was presented at most seminaries or colleges that you might go to. Uh, it's not today. It's becoming more questioned. And my book was seeking to add some sort of ballast to the counter view, some evidence to show that it, they really didn't withdraw. Everyone started to have this sense that couldn't be true. It's a myth, like you said. But I wanted to show concretely that we can point to evidence that shows that they really never did withdraw in that way. Yeah, uh, well, you begin by, first of all, trying to do some semantics with the, with the term evangelical or evangelicalism. And, you know, I mean, I mean in a way, it, it makes common sense for if you're going to be evangelical, you got to go out in the public square. Uh, but give, give, a, give us your, your sort of overview of, of the definition of evangelicalism and why, why, that's, why that's necessary to the story. Yes, yeah, so evangelical history starts with the Great Awakening. You have leaders like Whitfield and Wesley and Edwards. 
there's this evangelical awakening across the Atlantic in uh, England and in America. From there, it grows. Uh, it goes through the Second Grand Awakening. There's a populist and evangelistic impulse that's added. Uh, it comes to sort of preeminence during D.L. Moody's era. And then after that, evangelicalism runs into theological modernism. And as a response, some evangelicals want to double down on basics of the faith, and they become known as fundamentalists. They publish the fundamentals, seven volumes, upholding the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, doctrines like that. And they become fundamentalists, fighting against theological modernism. But at some point, supposedly, they withdraw from the public square, focus on their own institutions, and then they come roaring out after the, after the Second World War and re-engage culture. And that's where you have the nowadays, that, that would lead to the current evangelical moment where uh, evangelicals are, are very likely to be involved in politics and to seek to influence the public square. So that's a story writ large. I like David Bevington's definition of evangelicalism. Some people question it on the edges, but at its core, I think it's good. He says an evangelical is marked by four traits, conversionism, activism, biblicism, and crucicentrism. So focus on conversion, activism, the Bible, and the cross. That's all pretty true across the scope of evangelical history. You can't really find an era where that's not true. So the reason that the 1920s fundamentalists were interesting to me is because activism normally includes both a theological or, or spiritual aspect, seeking to evangelize the world, but it also includes a social aspect, seeking to influence, to bring the, gospel, the ethics of the gospel to bear in the public square. So according to this margin interpretation of fundamentalists, they lack that, that aspect of, of, of what makes an evangelical an evangelical. Those, those four traits, they didn't fully uphold one of them if Marsden's thesis was true. And I wanted to show that it wasn't true. They actually did. They were fully conversionist, activist, biblicist, and crucicentrist. And they included, that included trying to influence the public square. So the fundamentalists named themselves? Uh, that, that was I, their, I mean, well, you said they did the fundamentals, and that then became the name of, the, of, of, of that what, what, that outlook. Right. They publish the fundamentals. Uh, they, there is one leader who uses that term fundamentalist about them. It's sometimes used against them, but they eventually come to adopt it as they'll just call themselves fundamentalists. And even some people who others might think were outside this, this, the, uh, the circle, like Amy Semple McPherson, who's a Pentecostal, she would, she would out openly call herself a fundamentalist too. So it became a, a public label that everyone sort of latched onto. And when, I mean, we lead up to the Scopes trial, when Darwinism was beginning to spread in the uh, mid-late 19th century, what the origin of species, I think, is 1859, uh, did, did evangelicals or the fundamentalists have a, an earlier response to Darwin before the, the Scopes trial? Yeah, there's an interesting history there. Not all evangelicals are opposed to evolution right away from the very beginning. Uh, there's a mixed response, or sometimes they'll, they'll take some parts of it, but not others. The change that happens at the beginning of the 20th century is that evolution comes to be taught in public schools. So your children are now learning about evolution. 
uh, when they go to kindergarten, when they go to eighth grade, whatever, and it goes up through college level. And also, public education becomes more standardized. So it's not so owned by the local community. It's following larger standards that are coming from the state, from the country, the federal level. And it's just becoming a more standardized experience. And when that begins to happen, and some of the way that evolution is taught in the public schools, then fundamentalists latch onto the issue and start to really oppose it. And there aren't private evangelical schools in 1880, say. Really, the Catholic schools are the only, and, and, and those, you know, those fancy prep schools in the Northeast, or maybe a few in the South. That's about it for private schools, correct? Right. There's no K-12 through evangelical school movement at this time. That will come later. There, there begins to be Bible institutes at the college level, or what would be, they may not offer a four-year degree, but that level. Uh, but yeah, there's no K-12 through alternative for parents, so that's right. Their kids are stuck going to the public school, whether they like it or not. Right, right. So uh, the, the, big, the big event here, the Scopes trial. Uh, give us, and, and take your time, take your time, M- Madison. What was the case? Why did it happen? Where did it happen? Yes. So the trial takes place in uh, Dayton, Tennessee, and it's, it's started by local leaders who want to have a case about this issue in order to get some public attention on their city. So PR for the city. Um, so it's, it's, it's a manufactured event, uh, in a sense. They go looking for a teacher who may have taught evolution from the public school curriculum, so using a standard textbook. And they land on a, a teacher who had substituted in science classes. I believe he was a PE teacher normally. And he had stepped in and uh, had been teaching this textbook and presumably would have covered the section on evolution. I think he later said he didn't even cover that section. But he could have covered it. It was possible. So that's the pretext for the trial. So, um, so it was like, like, like several famous cases. You know, for instance, the, the Plessy-Ferguson case was, was a setup. I mean, Homer Plessy was testing the law. I mean, by, by setup, I don't mean that as, a, as you know, a, a, any criminal you know, thing. Right. But it was intentional, right, to yes. get a legal, a legal action uh, going. So same thing here? Very much so. Yes. It, the, the local community wanted to start the trial. They knew they had a big issue on their hands and they were hoping to gain some attention. I don't think they had any idea it would become quite as famous as it was. Uh, the trial was covered all over the country, all over the world. They had letters from scientists in France, you know, sent to the court or, hmm. or like published in newspapers and things. So it became a huge event, even, I think it outstripped their expectations. But yes, it's very much a purposely started public relations type trial. And the, uh, uh, the controversy begins, what, what happens to, to this man? I mean, what, what is the legal mechanism that makes, the, the, that makes this become a court case? Yes. It was, it was against the law to, to teach about evolution, even though it was, it was being done. So the, stu- the teacher is charged with teaching evolution in the public school. He's eventually convicted and fined $100, which is, I think, the most he could be fined, which is a lot more than it, now, than, than it is now, but still not a lot. Um, and that's all pretty straightforward. 
and I don't think either side expected a different result, really. The point was to go through the argument and to get into newspapers and in a sense to play it out in a larger, larger scale across the country. And they had amazing lawyers on both sides. They had William Jennings Bryan, of course, on the conservative side, prosecutor. And they had Clarence Darrow, who's already famous by this time, as a defense. And their questioning of witnesses and their speeches are uh, interesting and fun and reprinted in newspapers. And it's entertaining. The whole event is entertaining. And I, I don't think most of our listeners will realize what a monumental figure William Jennings Bryan was had been in American national politics for 30 years before before this time. He ran for president, what, four times? Known yeah, four as, times. Uh, from, from Nebraska, known as the Great Commoner. An amazing orator, in fact. He would go give speeches. I mean, I, I, I know a little bit about From my own work, I know a little bit about him. He would give speeches, and thousands would come all over the land. To hear, to hear him speak. So you're thinking, in a courtroom, he must have been quite, quite a figure there. Uh, yeah. Right. For sure, he was. He was excellent. He was an excellent speaker. He was a former cabinet make, member, even though he had never achieved the White House. He was a cabinet member. And he hadn't... He was a Democrat. A Democrat, just, just right. so... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just so people know. The, the, the dividing lines weren't, didn't quite fall in the same places then as they do now. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, okay, he was sort of connected to the, the, the populist party in, in, uh, in the Midwest there for, for a few years as, as well. Um, but he, what was his connection to sort of broadly the evangelical world, the fundamentalist world? Right. He, he would not have been called a fundamentalist leader in 1910. But when this issue came along, he... He had a lot of he had enough common ground with fundamentalists that he wanted to be their champion on this issue. So he would start to call himself a fundamentalist, and he became they they would call him a fundamentalist openly in the newspapers by the time the Scopes trial is underway. But that was he's a politician, and he sort of steps into that role to be a leader for fundamentalists on this issue. And he has some theological uh, training and background, like he, he's able to ask questions that that clearly you can see his his he has a sort of basic theological understanding that aligns with fundamentalism. Uh, but he's not really an expert. And when he gets questioned on the stand by Clarence Darrow, Darrow embarrasses him. And he shows up some of his, some of his theology is uh, rudimentary, I guess. He doesn't have sophisticated answers for good questions. You, you know, that, that is, that, that's a big moment when, when he, he takes the stand, right? Uh, how did Darrow get involved? Darrow is the famous atheist. Right. Yes. Right. And he has a, a bigger social agenda. He's pushing for what we would call left wing values uh, consistently in the trials that he takes on, the cases that he takes on. Uh, he's also defended like, famous murderers. So he's done other things as well. But he's a well-known attorney. Did, and, did yeah, he, he defend Leopold and Loeb? Yes, he did. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So he, he's uh, he's he's. Infamous or famous, depending on where you're coming from, he's well known, and he outright states that he wants to he wants to defend evolution. That's why he's taking on this case. He more or less says that directly. Okay, okay, and he comes he comes into the trial. So you've got these two. I mean, the lawyers. These two lawyers were more famous than than, than the parties, right? <laughs> or, or the judge, or anyone else in yes. in in the courtroom, and people people loved it. 
right? Uh, oh, yes. Now, how did other Christians weigh in on this? Uh, Catholics or, or Episcopalians, you know, Presbyterians, non-evangelicals, did they have, a, they, they, have, they have a take on the trial? So from what I saw, reading newspaper articles, from like op-eds or when reporters would ask questions of leaders of different, in different faith traditions, if the respondent is a, a liberal Protestant, they tend to be supportive of evolution. Uh, if they're Catholic, they tend to at least be more nuanced or open to it. So there were no other groups that I saw in these newspaper reports that were as firmly opposed to evolution in any form as the fundamentalists were. Usually they're more, more wanting to either find some common ground or just, just accept it, essentially. And much of you, you, you talk about the press, much of your book does cover press coverage, how the media shows things. How did the media present the Scopes trial to America? It was a culture war, an entertaining one, uh, something that, like, there were notable quotes every day from the trial. In the months leading up to it, there was some lead up, and then after it, there's tons of coverage still. Uh, William Jennings Bryan also died shortly thereafter, like right after the trial. So that also gins up more coverage. But the tone of the newspaper reports is what one issue that I was looking at in particular, and it wasn't as negative toward fundamentalists as we might assume these days. Uh, they tended to view them as a little extreme maybe, but still like a core part of American culture and a view that was somewhat normal. Not that every reader is going to have it, but there will be readers out there who have the, the same view that the fundamentalists do. So there were plenty of uh, writers in the newspaper who didn't like them. H.L. Mencken is famous. Uh, he's super entertaining and really caustic toward fundamentalists, of course. Um, but then they also would have op-eds that would support fundamentalists, or at least part of what they're arguing for, as being good for morals or sort of good American, traditional kind of people or something. So, so the tone wasn't as negative as it might be t today uh, in major newspapers if, if there was a similar group arguing against, say, the teaching of evolution in public schools. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine a lot of people's exposure to the trial comes from the play and then the movie. The famous movie with, with Frederick March, I believe, plays William Jennings Bryan. Is it Spencer Tracy who plays Darrow? I think Wait it is. Wait a minute. Is it Spencer Tracy? Or one of them. I'll have to look it up. So I haven't... Yeah, I've, Frederick I've seen, March like, plays, plays Bryan. And, and the, okay. of course, the big dramatic moment is when, when Bryan takes the stand and starts fumbling uh, things. And the movie, of course, is, is again, highly slanted actually, uh, in a way that what, what you say the press wasn't quite so, so against the, the fundamentalists on, on this. But how did fundamentalism fare in the public eye after, after the trial? In the immediate aftermath, fundamentalists come out of it energized. They won the trial. They want to seek to enforce or pass similar laws around the country. Some even talk about going around the world. So they're enthusiastic. Newspapers cover them as interesting. You know, they're, they're a party, that, they're a group out there that's doing something. So they, they keep covering them. They get readers, I, I assume. There isn't really a hint that they've lost in the court of public opinion until there's a 1931 book that comes out evaluating the 20s. And that author presents them as sort of a benighted, um, rural, sad, a sad group 
that didn't do well at the trial. And from then on, then you get the play and then the movie, and it, be, there become, it becomes common in the public narrative to look at the Scopes trial as a loss for fundamentalists. So that, that you don't see any evidence of that until around 1931. Hmm, interesting. And, and prohibition didn't help, right? The, the ultimate yes. re- reputation. I mean, maybe, I mean, this is a big part of, of your book. You turn to the prohibition issue. Uh, uh, how does the prohibition issue figure in, in this Evangelicals in the Public Square? So this is just my opinion, but I think the repeal of prohibition was a bigger loss for fundamentalists in the, in the long term than losing on evolution, eventually losing in public schools on evolution. Because the temperance movement uh, was much longer lasting. It was a broader coalition. It wasn't just fundamentalists. They can make common cause with modernists on this issue. They often did. Yeah. And a lot of the country was on their side, at least at the beginning of Prohibition. By the end, it's unpopular. No one's really there to defend it. They're still defending it. You have like, conservative Methodists who could be called, by in those terms, could be called fundamentalists, and they're still defending it. Uh, but it's a losing battle by the end. And I think when Prohibition is repealed, and, and some of their key leaders have died. The press seems to lose some interest in fundamentalists. And I don't think it was their, their choice, but they sort of get relegated more to the margins. They're not a live party that's pushing for any relevant policies. They're not part of any live debates in the same way that they were. So I think, yeah, the repeal of prohibition is a real blow to conservative evangelical fundamentalists, conservatives who think that they can... Who, were hoping they could influence the public square and had some influence for a long time and then yeah. saw it fade away. Uh, what was the Anti-Saloon League? Oh, I'm not really an expert on uh, the Anti-Saloon League yet, but there are many organizations that start some way back when, like early right. in the 1800s, and they were pushing for temperance or prohibition measures for a long time before it finally comes about. They have like Billy Sunday, uh, Fundamentalist leaders like that who actually, have I was going to ask you about about a few of of those figures. I want to make sure that that we get to some of those in in time. Who was Billy Sunday? So he's a former baseball player, pro baseball player, who becomes an evan- evangelist, traveling evangelist. What, what years? What years? Uh, he it's like late eight, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. He has a conversion experience, and he starts barnstorming. He travels the country. They'll build like temporary structures for his revivals when he comes into town. And he'll have tens of thousands of people at his height. Huge really? events. I mean, you're nights. not exaggerating. Tens of thousands. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, come. would come in the whole, as he's in the town, tens of, yeah. the city, tens yeah. of thousands, for sure. Uh, he's interviewed in major magazines. He'd be on the radio uh, when there is one. And he's a big figure. But by the time fundamentalists come along and the Scopes trial is is happening in 1925. He's on the decline now in his career and nearing, nearing the end. So at the, his height, he's traveling the country in a special ra- railroad car. He dresses really nicely. If you ever seen pictures of him, he looks sharp. And he's, he's not a nuanced, careful speaker. He's, a, <laughs> he's an outrageous, fiery speaker. Again, he's really fun if you read his speeches and you like that sort of thing. And he'll, he has a whole sermon that he adapts and gives in different ways. It's against alcohol. And uh, nine-tenths of his arguments are not biblical, but cultural. So how alcohol is bad for society, how it contributes to mental health issues, although he uses ruder terms than that, how it contributes to people being in jail, how it harms the economy, you know, arguments like that. 
Um, yeah, he's, he's a major voice against alcohol during his era. But by the time Prohibition comes around, he's already starting to retire. And who was Amy Semple McPherson? Yes. She's the founder of the Foursquare Church, uh, Pentecostal, first wave Pentecostal. And she calls herself a fundamentalist. Sometimes people, depends how you want to look at that era, sometimes people would separate the sort of non-charismatics from charismatics, but she would call herself a fundamentalist. She's also a colorful figure. She's very much influenced by Hollywood. Her church services, uh, she'll have dramas and she'll act in them and there'll be big productions. Um, and she'll be, she has a radio, she'll be on the radio sometimes. She's, she's a famous leader of her era, but she also has some colorful parts to her story. Was she, so, was she beautiful? I think she might've been considered beautiful at the time. I, I think she was. I think she yes. Was. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So that always helps. Um, she also claimed she was kidnapped once, but it seems that she just ran off with another man who she wasn't married to for a time and then came back. Uh, and then had a, like a wild story to explain it that was never provable. So she has a colorful history, but she is part of some of the culture war efforts of fundamentalists, and she will speak against alcohol and evolution and other things in some of her sermons and public events. And you, you note that H.L. Mencken was the main voice, right, mocking them and deriding them, and, and, and uh, especially over the prohibition issue, but that at the time... You implied this a minute ago, but Mencken himself wasn't as uh, wasn't as dominant, wasn't as popular as we believe when we look back at in history. We always see his quotes uh, about things, but no, not as uh, not as influential as we think. Yeah, yeah, he he is his his columns are syndicated in different newspapers, so he shows up in different places. But he's more of an extreme view. Uh, he didn't make any space for the fundamentalist perspective. Whereas more commonly in newspaper reports of the time, there'll be some accommodations or understanding made toward them or for them. And yeah, he, he doesn't do that at all. Uh, so right, he, he was maybe somewhat extreme at his time. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in his time, there were a lot of newspapers that were themselves evangelical newspapers. There are, yeah, there are fundamentalist or conservative evangelical publications out there as well that just present the... the uh, the view of fundamentalists. Um, some of them, you know, I'm not an expert on those, so I don't want to guess too much, but some of them will have enough circulation to get into a lot of households. And then some are started during this period too. So during the fundamentalist period, uh, like William Bell Riley starts publication. I think the King's Business that comes out of Biola starts around this time. So there are their own organs of communication start around this time. And, and you know, as, as, we, as we wrap things up here, Madison, uh, are evangelical leaders, from what you know today, go ahead and go ahead and speculate, a little leery, you know, after after Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and and that that era, uh, they may be evangelicals may be maybe politically active in their sort of quiet way, but a worry about getting too loud, getting too public. You sense that? That's a good question. So, as you said, this is just my opinion now. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's there's maybe two streams that I would see in evangelical cultural engagement or political engagement today. So there are those that want to seek the common good, 
you don't want to be too loud, like you're saying, or too don't want to be like the fundamentalists of a past era. Then there are some, I don't know how many, but then there are some that are more doubling down on Christian nationalism and wanting to push the really overt Christian influence on the political space all across, like at every level. Um, and I see, from where I work at least in circles I travel in, I see some of both. Um, so you can see sort of errors maybe of the fundamentalist era today. But you also see a lot of evangelicals who react against that and are trying to cultivate a different way to engage in politics. So I think that's the fairest way I, I can see it, say it from my perspective. Is there, is there, last question, is there an evangelical school movement sort of that goes along with maybe the classical school movement? Is there, are there more fundamentalist schools opening? Well, there are many, many K through 12 evangelical schools these days, like in the ACSI network, or there's an IACE network, if any listeners are familiar with those. Um, and then also a lot of classical schools are, are friendly to evangelicals. A lot of evangelical families like classical schools these days as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's see them prosper. Yes, Madison. yeah, okay. for sure. For, for now, the book is Fundamentalists in the Public Square, Evolution, Alcohol, and Culture Wars After the Scopes trial. Madison Trammell, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. I enjoyed it.